Good morning. We're reading from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's, um, it's true that our country and many others, but especially in a, in a free economy country, our history is littered with stories of corrupt companies that surprised individuals. Actually, it's also littered with history of individuals who were held up in high regard that were corrupt and nobody knew it. Bernie Madoff is a name that comes right to the fore when you think of corruption in finance, creating a a Ponzi scheme that really destroyed the lives of thousands of people, losing everything they had put aside for retirement. Or you may remember a movie called Big Short. Any of you see that movie? It's a movie about the 2008 financial crisis of the savings and loan industry. I watched the movie and thought, this is a movie I need to watch again so I can understand it. (laughs) I felt like I needed a degree in finance to really delve into what happened. But the bottom line is this. People understood what they were doing was corrupt, and other people did not know. And they were completely caught off guard. These disasters and and multiple other disasters, financial or personal, they come with a singular problem. And here's the singular problem. It's an undetected integrity problem. In other words, integrity was assumed. But somewhere in this mass corporation, certain people did not have integrity. And those certain people were in critical positions with their lack of integrity to bring down the whole house of cards. 
It didn't seem like these companies could ever collapse like that. But they did. Most of the time when we hear the word integrity, the first thing that comes to mind is honesty, and that is appropriate. But I want to suggest another meaning for the word integrity, which is also true. Integrity comes from an idea called integrated. In other words, integrity means, in effect, that everything is integrated into a perfect whole. If a product has integrity, all its parts are working together perfectly in an integrated way. Now, follow me, if you will, in the application of integrated as the notion of integrity applied to discipleship. Twelve steps of discipleship all beginning in the sermon titles with the word choosing. Here's the first point of my sermon this week was entitled Choosing Integrity. The first point is this, a delightful discipline. A delightful discipline. Our Old Testament reading at the very beginning was from Psalm 19. As a matter of fact, it was all about the law. Or as the Jewish scholars would say, Torah. And you know what? The law has gotten a really bad rap. Primarily because of the Pharisees. Many, not all Pharisees, took the law and used it as a legalistic tool to oppress other people and to weigh them down with guilt. There were exceptions, of course, as in any category or group of people. Not every Pharisee was that. Remember the name Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night? Also the one at the end of Jesus' life who was instrumental in helping to bury Him as a, shall we say, secret follower? Not all Pharisees were that way, but many were. And so the law gets a bad rep. But it not only gets a bad rap from Phariseeism, it gets a bad rep, honestly, from some evangelical preachers who say that under the dispensation of grace, the law is of no effect. It's dismissed. Nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to what the psalmist says about the law. And Jesus embraced the law. Here's what the psalmist says about the law. We read it. God's law law does not destroy life, or oppress, when properly understood, it actually revives life. It gives life. The law of God also gives joy to the heart. Law, joy to the heart. The law of God, the Torah, gives light to the eyes, intense understanding 
of reality. The law of God, says the psalmist, is more precious than gold. Who throws gold away? By the way, Jesus would have concurred. The law of God, says the psalmist, is sweeter than honey. This, my friends, is the opposite of legalistic weight and burden. This discipline of the law is a delight, says the psalmist. Jesus did not do away with this law. He fulfilled it, completed it, became the one who fulfilled the law in multiple ways, including perfection according to the law for us. But he did not get rid of the law. Jesus would have found and did find the law a delightful discipline. By the way, the summary I just gave came from the first few verses of our reading, verses 7 through 11. Now, I think it's interesting in terms of order. I'm not quite sure why the psalmist did it that way, but I won't question him. After verse 11, he launches into something else, which if I was putting the sermon together, I might put first, but he didn't. He put it second. So what's the second part of Psalm 19? Why, in other words, is the law described with such great delight? Here's why. Because the psalmist views the law as an integrated whole that gives life. As a matter of fact, in another place, the psalmist, Psalm 1 says, those who live by the law are blessed by the overwhelming blessing of God. The psalmist is calling us to an integrated life in following the law. And it's a delight, he says. But there's something else about the delight. The delight involves self-examination. And that's where verse 12 kicks in and goes through the end of our reading. He acknowledges in the latter half of the psalm his need for guidance. The law provides the guidance. He realizes his lack of wisdom. The law provides wisdom. He realizes that the law is and I, I noticed that my word grammar check didn't like this, the fitted togetherness of reality. By the way, um, just as an aside, every Christmas we've got this tradition, we get a puzzle out. A new puzzle, never the same one as far as I can remember, and we put it on a big table and we just start working on it. So our kids are home and friends are over and the puzzle goes on and on and on. And this year, the puzzle was a puzzle of the sample gates at IU. 
with all the tulips in full bloom at springtime. And you can imagine how difficult the puzzle was. It went on for days, even weeks, before it was finally completed. We had a bunch of people over at our house, and everybody was working the puzzle. And finally, at the end of one day, it all came together. As a matter of fact, the puzzle was so troubling to us that we had the frame all constructed. And then we realized there were a couple of pieces that were flat on the edge that were not a part of the frame. But it looked perfect until we started examining it. Before it was all over, we we got it together. And what finally emerged is a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture because of an integrated whole. The psalmist wants us to know that that's what the law of God does. I referred to the second half of the psalm. Now let me say something about it more specifically. In verses 12 through 14, we understand how it all fits together. And you know one of the first ways we understand that? Is through embracing accountability. The psalmist says you've got to examine your heart. Who, he says, can discern the error of his or her own ways? So, Lord, I can follow your law, but I want your law to shine a searchlight on my heart so that I know the ways in which I'm not following your commandments. Lord, help me to be knitted together, fully woven together with your law. And part of that is to have self-examination. The first step, the psalmist says at the end of Psalm 19, is to admit that self-deception exists. It's one of those times I, I forgot to mark Psalm 19. So hang on for just a second. At least I'm not pulling out my iPhone to find it, right? Um, Here are the words that I'm referring to, beginning with verse 12. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The law is a delight But in order for it to be a delight, we must allow it to examine us. To be a searchlight on our unintended faults. Um, There are other passages in the psalm that take this a bit further. Psalm 141, verse 5. Some of you may have heard of this psalm before as it relates to accountability. 
We don't just ask God to show us our error of our ways. We actually depend on others. So the psalmist in 145, 141.5 says, let a, listen to this, <laughs> let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That's oil on my head. I need accountability. Somebody just slapped me a good one and helped me to wake up to my hidden faults. Also, I don't want to be a transgressor in terms of willful sins, but I know I'm going to, says the psalmist, so protect me against it. Does that also remind you of the words of Jesus? Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How does this spiritual inventory of the heart take place? It takes place through brothers and sisters in Christ. It takes place by being open to the fact that we have errors and admitting it. And it takes place by meditating on the law of God. So that it becomes so much a part of us that we are pained when we step away from it. There's an interesting twist in this psalm. The beginning of the psalm we did not read. It's about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And we see this image of the sun coming up and going all across the earth. And the phrase is, nothing is hidden from its heat. Think about that as eyes. Nothing is unseen by it. The law of God and the presence of God are like that. So allow the meditations of my heart to be so conformed to your law that my will is conformed to your will. And then I will have joy. Now, having said all that, let me transition to the passage that we read from the New Testament. That passage was in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. You may remember it spoke about the Gentiles and the corruption of the Gentiles. You also recall that I said not all Pharisees were bad. Paul didn't mean that all Gentiles were bad. He just meant that the Gentile culture was corrupt and apart from the law of God. On the other side of where we ought to be, don't live like that, said Paul. Don't live that way. I was reading somebody this week who said, maybe the best way for us to understand this is instead of saying don't live like the Gentiles, say don't live like the Americans. Don't live in the futility of your own thoughts. Don't give yourself over to insatiable desires and chasing after the flesh and chasing after money and chasing after everything but God. Don't do that, says Paul. The litany of sins could be longer than the whole book because sin is insidious. 
the culture of the Israelites when they heard the law of God, the Canaanite culture was just like the Gentile culture that Paul was speaking about. It was excessive. And God of the Israelites and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians is entirely different than the culture and entirely different than the other gods, Roman gods or Canaanite gods. Because Canaanite gods were known as being capricious. They were known as manipulating people. They were known as being one thing, only more powerful than the humans and immortal. But they were not moral. God enters the picture with his law and he says, this is the way to live. I love you with an eternal, everlasting love. Jesus Christ comes along and says, I'll show you what the eternal love of God is. I will die for your sins. So here's what I want you to know, Paul says. Don't live like them. Why would you live that way? To live that way creates all kinds of problems. I've mentioned before, but I love more than any other definition of sin, the definition that Martin Luther gave to sin. And here's the summary of his words. A human being is curved in upon self. Paul basically was saying, We're twisted by the idolatry of self-interest. Move in another direction. Don't live there. Some of you may know uh, the name Pascal, a Christian philosopher. He had a series of sayings, not so much a book, but a series of sayings, and some of them are so profound and pithy. Here's one of them. Pride takes you from God and lust binds you to yourself. Another one of his sayings is, our own interest is a marvelous instrument for nicely putting out our eyes. Paul says, the culture is blind because all they're doing is chasing after their desires. Their hearts are hardened. Their eyes are blind. They have no insight. Live differently. The result of surrendering to our selfish desires is decay. It's corruption. It's hardness of heart. It's a darkening of the mind. Choosing self has consequences. By the, word, the, by the way, the word hardened in the text comes from a Greek word called porosis. And it meant a hard stone or metal. But it was also used in ancient times for a description as a medical term for when limbs basically froze up they began to be so hardened that they could no longer move. 
Paul says, if you pursue your own selfish desires and don't follow God, you will freeze up and you'll be blind because you'll be poking out your own eyes, as Pascal says. So choose life. How do you choose life? We're going back to Psalm 19. You meditate on God's law. And it gives light to the eyes. How do you choose life? Paul said it in another place in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You do it by renewing your mind. So that you can know the will of God. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Maybe you think I should just stop. You got it all. I did make a lot of applications throughout, right? I I just want to mention several points of conclusion. Delight in God's way. Don't follow your own insatiable desires. It's pretty simple. Not easy, but simple. Delight in God's ways. Second point is integrate life into a whole. Integrity. Integrated. And how do you do that? Without being overwhelmingly negative and condemning yourself and going through self-loathing, what you do is you examine your heart and allow others to do the same. You ask questions in your life concerning consistency. You say, in effect, if I believe this, why don't I act like that? As a good friend of mine once told me, when that person was going off on something that they were afraid of and was undermining their confidence and on and on and on like we all do, this person, who as I understand it was not a believer, looked at this person and said to him, for a guy who has faith, you don't actually live like it. We're called to actually ask hard questions about consistency and ask whether or not our beliefs are consistent with our life. Third thing, in order to do this, we got to have help. Not just meditating on the law, great as it is. We should allow it to examine our hearts, but we need help from others to expose our hidden vaults. You've got to have them, friends. You can't see yourself. By the way, let me just add one footnote to this. There's nobody in our life that understands us and sees through us better than our spouse. Hmm? You know that. And that's a wonderful blessing. However, don't put all the weight on your spouse. It's not fair. 
You need some people in your life who can be like that psalmist said. Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil on my head. Who are those people in your life? Who are they? Apart from your spouse. You need them. Because you can't see all your hidden faults. The fourth thing in conclusion, we must meditate on the law of God to understand it thoroughly and ask God to help us conform our will to his will. I want to connect Ephesians to Colossians for a minute because in Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul goes on a little bit of a rant about the same things about living differently than the world, about what our life is supposed to be like. And in Colossians, uh, Colossians 3.12, you want to look it up. He uses this image. He says, instead of living that way, clothe yourself with humility and kindness. He could have gone on and on with honesty and integrity with forgiveness. Clothe yourself in the righteousness that God through Christ has given to you. So here's a summary that I hope you'll just take away. What is discipleship? What is choosing integrity? Because you follow Christ, you've got new clothes. Don't be stupid and leave them in the closet. Put them on and wear them everywhere you go. Clothe yourself in the virtues of Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we um, thank you for your law. We don't want to dismiss it. We don't want to be legalistic about it. We don't want to be oppressed by it. We want to be freed by it. We want to have our eyes opened by it. We want it to be part of the integrity, the integrated fitting together of our lives. And we want to do it so that we'll find joy. We know deep down that our human insatiable desires don't enrich us. They destroy us. They corrupt us. So may we turn to you, Lord. May we ask for the integrity that comes from the law. May we ask for the integrity of putting on the righteousness of Christ and living it. And finally, Lord, we, we thank you for forgiveness. Because we know we're going to mess up. We thank you for forgiveness because we know you see our lives as not being fully integrated. 
And still you love us and you forgive us. And amazingly, you call us. So as we discover how our lives are not integrated, give us the will to follow you and give us the joy of an integrated life as disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.